Most of us in healthcare are warm, caring people who are committed to keeping our patients safe and doing no harm. But there are some among us who do the unthinkable and betray our noble profession. On this podcast, we like to shine a light on the good and the bad. Each week, I'll be joined by another healthcare professional, and together we'll dive into these stories while chatting about nursing and healthcare along the way. I'm Tina, a registered nurse, and this is Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. everybody, this is Tina again with Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. Welcome back to another week of true crime and nursing and healthcare. We throw a little bit of everything in there, but we definitely make sure we always are going to be talking about good nurses and bad nurses. This week, we definitely have a very sensitive topic that we're going to be talking about. I definitely want to kind of warn everyone that's going to be listening to this. We'll do a little trigger warning here right at the beginning and let you know we're going to be dealing with mental health issues. And also we'll be dealing with children and some just very, very disturbing subject matter to just kind of warn you of that up front. And having said that, I want to welcome my very special guest host this week, the entire IT department of Good Nurse, Bad Nurse, and also my husband, Mark. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Tina. Great to be here. (laughs) Anytime we have Mark on the show, I feel like there's usually some sort of change that's happening or some big milestone that we've reached. I don't know. It seems like anytime we kind of are going into a new in our family and as a couple that, you know, I always want to have you on to kind of talk about it as a nurse and as a family member of a nurse, as a husband of a nurse. I think that a lot of our listeners can probably identify with this and relate to this, that even if your spouse is not in healthcare if you're somebody that comes home and talks to your spouse about your job, they tend to, over time, kind of almost become a surrogate healthcare professional, like just because you hear so much and you really learn so much about the profession. So I, f- I feel like that's how it is with us. Mm-hmm. I definitely have deserved a parking badge mm-hmm. at some point. Yes. Bringing you lunch. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so we are kind of entering a different chapter in my nursing career. I've taken on a new position as a nurse, and I'm really, really excited about this new job that I'm going to be taking on. I'm not going to be working at the bedside, at least not right now. And I'm very, very excited about it, but I'm going to be working from home. And I've talked about this a little bit because we've had some remote nurses on the podcast and we've talked about you know, alternative nursing careers and things that you can do with your degree and with your skills and knowledge and expertise other than working at the bedside. And so I'm going to venture into that and we'll see how it goes. Yeah. I I mentioned earlier to you that I thought you were, you maybe hadn't sunk into you that you're going to be, you know, leaving bedside and what you're going to miss about it. I'm expecting that will hit in the next few days. Well, and it really has already started hitting. I had a couple of tears at work today at the end of the shift because one of the nurses that I am working with is not going to be back over the next couple of days. So I know I'm not going to work with her again. And so she, you know, we had to have that exchange of like, you know, oh, I've really enjoyed working with you and all that. So it was not easy. And it's at the end of the shift, so I can kind of let my guard down just enough that I can feel, you know, the tears. And I'm like, ah, gosh, no, don't do this. But, you know, the thing is, it is I tend to get attached to people. And as I told them, you know, if I didn't really love the hospital where I'm working right now, it would be a lot easier. But because 
I have made some really good friendships and I, I really, really just adore the people that are at this hospital. It's really hard to leave as a travel nurse, you know, even if I was just going on another assignment, but it's also difficult knowing that I'm not going to be working at the bedside anymore, not going to have direct that direct patient contact, that direct interaction with patients and their family members. And it's I'm going to be working in a completely different capacity. So I'm excited about my new opportunity, but at the same time, it there it, there's a sadness that's kind of like lingering mm-hmm. over it as well. So, well, I'm excited to have you home. Well, I'm excited to be able to be there. Obviously, so we'll see where this takes us. And if any of you have any questions about it, you are welcome to reach out to me. I would be happy to answer any questions that you have. You can email me at tina at goodnursebedders.com. I know know, there's many people I think have a lot of questions, you know, about, wait, what? You're doing, you're working from home as a nurse. You know, some people may be thinking, how in the world would that work? Well, there's actually a lot of things you can do. A lot, lots of different jobs that you can do as a nurse, actually using your nursing knowledge and your nursing skills, working from home. It's kind of neat. So having said all of that, we are going to get into a story that is, as I said at the beginning, very disturbing. But at the same time, it's very important to discuss the subject matter and really kind of, you know, dive into it, tackle it, not be afraid to talk about these things. I think that it's much more detrimental to our society to sweep these things under the rug and pretend like they don't happen, then we just kind of tackle them head on, talk about it so that people can be aware and look for signs and reach out and ask for help, get help, you know, early on when they start seeing these things happening. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of different layers to it in this story. You know, there's a lot of things that could have been done. You know, you can't really put your finger on exactly who was at fault. I mean, I think there was enough of that to go around, but mental health issue, I think was a common thread all the way through this story. Oh my gosh, absolutely. There's no doubt about that. CBD Stat, they're amazing products. Love them. They support our podcast. Their CBD product is some of the absolute purest CBD out there. And some of my friends use it for headaches. I personally use it for foot pain. It helps with some people with their back pain. It's truly an amazing product. And they are so good to healthcare professionals. Such a good company. You know, I was able to use their product for the first time after you and I returned from Washington, D.C. for the Nurses March. They provided me with some samples. And I used it on a sore knee and then later on a sore wrist. And it helped so much. My daughter even uses it on her back for her scoliosis. And it really does help. That's amazing. And of course, their products are 100% THC free, which is great for travel nurses who have to take a drug test every three months. They only offer very strong CBD greater than 1,000 milligrams. If you're interested, you can go to cbdstat.care forward slash good nurse, bad nurse. That's cbdstat.care forward slash good nurse, bad nurse. Be sure and put the forward slash good nurse, bad nurse in there so they'll know that we sent you there. I also wanted to remind you that if you're interested in travel nursing, to go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile so you can see what kind of jobs are out there. And you can also see what they pay, the stipend, the hourly rate, all of that. I'm a travel nurse now with Trusted Health, and I absolutely love working for them. So go to trustedhealth.com, be sure and put forward slash good nurse so that they'll know that we sent you there and fill out a profile today. With that, I guess we can go ahead and dive into this story. This is the story of Andrea Yates. I have to say this, I remember so vividly when this happened. At the time, court TV was very popular. This case had national news attention and it, it you couldn't get away from it. It was everywhere, everywhere. Everyone was talking about this when it happened. I did not, however, know that she was a registered nurse when I was just kind of doing some research and looking into different cases to do, and this came up, I was just floored. It's a very, very popular case, uh, one that I think most people are at least familiar with her name, if you're not familiar with all the details. And I think that as we get into the details of this story, people are going to be surprised because I followed the case 
pretty closely, I think, when it was going on. I still, there were so many details. I had no idea some of the things that happened in this story. And I think people are going to be really surprised to find out a lot of the things that happened in this story. She was a registered nurse. She was from Texas. She was born in a town called Hallsville, Texas. She was the youngest of five children. Her parents were German immigrants. And during her teenage years, she struggled with bulimia. She also struggled with depression. And despite this, she really excelled academically in school. She was involved in several extracurricular activities. She was captain of the swim team. She was an officer in the National Honor Society. And she was also the valedictorian of Milby High School's graduating class of 1982. That is, that sounds like someone who is a very high achiever, someone who obviously- Yeah, it doesn't sound like a debilitating type of depression. We all can deal with depression from time to time, but she was definitely a very active and successful young lady. Yeah, absolutely. Well, after high school, she- completed a two-year pre-nursing program at the University of Houston and then graduated from the University of Texas Health Science Center at Houston. After she graduated, she secured a position as a registered nurse at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. And it was during this time that she met Russell or Rusty Yates. He was an engineer, two years her junior. A summertime romance bloomed between the couple in 1989 and on April 17, 1993, they tied the knot. What type of engineer was he? Do you remember? I don't know what type of... I mean, he worked at NASA. I know that. Okay. So um, that's pretty impressive. Right. Definitely. Yeah. They were obviously both highly intelligent people, very academic, just brilliant people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No doubt about that. They, Their family quickly expanded and they welcomed their first child, Noah, in February 1994. They were excited to be first-time parents and reportedly, quote, wanted to have as many children as nature would allow. (laughs) I had a cousin that had eight children. Oh, wow. Now, the story that I remember was that they were going to keep having children until they had a girl. Oh, gosh. So that was number eight. (laughs) (laughs) Well, other life changes were on the horizon for the Yates family. He accepted a job offer in Florida. They packed up and settled into a small mobile home in Seminole. The Yates family continued to grow, and by the time of the birth of their third child, Paul, in 1997, they moved back to Houston, where they purchased a GMC motor home. So Andrea began exhibiting signs of depression after the birth of her fourth child, Luke. Her husband, Rusty, observed Andrea shaking and chewing her fingers on June 16th of 1999. She attempted to commit suicide the following day by overdosing on medication. Her self-harm attempt was unsuccessful and she was taken to the hospital. She was admitted and prescribed antidepressants. So I want to go back. A, a mobile home and a GMC motor home. Yeah. That sounds different than yes. what you would expect someone working at NASA. So were they financially struggling? or I don't think that they were necessarily financially struggling. I think that they were following a religious leader who sort of taught that the emphasis should not be put on material things. And so I think it was encouraged to just live this very minimalistic lifestyle. And so that was, it was more the thinking of like, well, you know, we don't, we're, we don't want to be materialistic. We don't have to have a big fancy house. We can. Mm -hmm. And so it almost, it's like it went from this mobile home to an actual bus because it was actually a bus. Wow. How do you even live in a bus with How many kids did they have at that point? Like three or four. Right. Yeah. Not seeing how that works. Apparently they would actually, uh, there there was a a place in the, like in the floor of the bus that was like a trap door that would go down into the cargo area, I guess, where Mm -hmm. you would store luggage. Mm -hmm. And reportedly that is where the children would sleep. 
they would make pallets for them down there in that area. And that's where the children would sleep in the bus. Mm-hmm. Okay. I mean, as it's, a child, it was probably yeah, kind probably of, fun. Yeah. <laughs> adventure sleeping, as Opie would say. Yeah, adventure adventure sleeping <laughs> on a ironing board between two chairs. <laughs> as a mother who is not only just young mother struggling to take care of four children, but also one that's struggling with mental health issues, you can see where it it, it would definitely add to the stress mm-hmm, that you mm-hmm. would be going through. Yeah. Just- stories that I read and uh, video, it did seem to me that there was a lot of time of isolation with her and her children. You know, I didn't hear much about friends or, you know, outside relationships with a church or, I mean, they they did have relationships with the people in their church, but they were just a, you know, a single couple that they would babysit each other's kids. Yeah. She just didn't have a lot of interaction with uh, people outside it does, her own family. It does seem that way. Um, a short period after she was discharged from the hospital, she held a knife to her throat and begged her husband to let her die. She was once again hospitalized and prescribed more medications, including Haldol, an antipsychotic drug. Her condition seemed to radically improve with this new combination of medications and he reevaluated the family's living situation after she was discharged and determined that maybe the living conditions were less than ideal for her health. I mean, this is there, lately in the past, I would say, what, 10, 15 years, it's become sort of popular for these tiny homes. Um, mm-hmm. It's all of a sudden kind of all the rage. You see it on these reality TV shows. People are buying these little bitty homes with this sort of minimalistic thinking and lifestyle and just like, we don't need all this space. The problem is, I mean, having that many children and then, as we said earlier, someone dealing with the mental health issues that she was dealing with in the isolation, it's just, it's like a recipe for disaster, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Well, her condition seemed to radically improve with the new combination of these medications. And as they decided to move into a larger home, so he traded the cramped quarters of this bus that they were living in for a small house. So that did seem to do wonders for her mental state. And she temporarily stabilized Now, it is worth noting that the media has attributed the decline of her mental health to this extremist preacher by the name of Michael Wernicke. He was a preacher. He was actually the person who sold them their bus. And he had some pretty radical beliefs, I think, and a very close relationship with this family, with the Yates family, and with with Andrea in particular. So her family was allegedly concerned by her captivation of this minister's words. He did. We we did a short dive into his history and found that he and the Yates family were very close. They would babysit each other's children. Andrea and the Wernicke would exchange letters up until 1999. Some brief research outlined some of the pastor's ideology, including that women are inherently sinful with the, quote, nature of Eve. Working women were especially sinful in nature, being called witches, and would repent by foregoing their employment and submitting to their husbands. Andrea allegedly adopted the mindset that women were sinful and weak and decided to quit her career as a nurse and stay home with the children. So it's, I think that there were a lot of people in Newsbitty who kind of grabbed onto this guy, were like, oh, this might have been the breaking point for her. It might have been where she kind of went off. It does sound like there was a lot of influence there in mm-hmm. the, you know, the employment and where they lived. Mm-hmm. Hmm. There, there, there have been uh, some people that said that he advised the Yates couple that they were eternally damned and that their children would experience the same fate if they were not quote saved by the time they were thirteen or fourteen. He allegedly ceased communication with Andrea in 1999. So in July 1999, she had a, what, I guess what's called, some people are referring to as a nervous breakdown that resulted in two suicide attempts. 
and two psychiatric hospitalizations that summer. She was diagnosed with postpartum psychosis. Now, postpartum psychosis is very different from postpartum depression. A lot of women suffer from postpartum depression. It is very, very common. It's something that just sort of you know, it creeps up after you've had a baby, all those hormones in your body kind of get go get flowing. And it's really without a lot, I think a lot of times without women even realizing it, they start having these thoughts of like, you know, sadness and isolation, feeling lonely, having to be up all hours of the night when everybody else is sleeping. I remember going through this with each of my children and actually Oftentimes it gets worse with every child. I can definitely attest to that personally. I know that every time with every child, it was definitely worse in in the middle of the night, feeling completely isolated. Everybody else is asleep. And it's just the, I can almost take myself back there now, just thinking about it and remembering how absolutely horrible I felt. And on top of feeling isolated and depressed and sad and all of those feelings, you feel guilt because you are a mother with this brand new baby that is just so beautiful and precious and you love this baby so much and you feel so guilty that you can't just enjoy the baby. Like, why can't you just be happy to have the baby? Why can't you just be happy? You have a nice, beautiful, healthy baby and, you know, all your, everything taken care of and you just, but you just can't and you don't know why. And so oftentimes mothers will kind of keep this themselves because they're embarrassed about it. You know, it's like, there's something wrong with me. I, if something's wrong with me, if I can't enjoy this time, because this is supposed to be the happiest time of my life. And in fact, there is something that is, wrong, but there's, I mean, there's nothing wrong with you. It's, there is a very common disorder that happens after you have a baby. It has to do with lots of chemicals, chemical changes and imbalances that happen. And it is remarkable how beneficial it can be just to talk to friends, talk to family, talk to your doctor, talk to your provider about this and get help for it. But what Andrea was going through was not just postpartum depression. It was postpartum psychosis. That is very different. And it's also extremely rare. It's also very dangerous, very, very dangerous. And it requires immediate help and a lot of support. It's just, it's a condition that is it's something that has to be addressed immediately, has to be taken very seriously, as we're going to see as the story unfolds. So her first psychiatrist, Dr. Eileen Starbranch, testified that she urged that Andrea and Rusty would not have any more children and cautioned that stopping the medications and becoming pregnant would likely, quote, guarantee future psychotic depression. So at this point, they're up to four, right? They've yeah. had four children. Right. So you would think that they've pretty much filled the nest with where they've been living. So yeah. Even though they did move into a small house, I guess they gave them room for one more. Well, Rusty would later remark that he was never told by psychiatrists that his wife was psychotic and that had he known otherwise, he would have never had more children. It's kind of hard though. I mean, there really is a lot of evidence to state the other otherwise. So if you really look at all of the evidence, the testimony from the different psychiatrists and really just evidence from what happened, I mean, these things are well documented, the things that yeah. happened. I don't know yeah. how he can argue yeah, when he and witnessed it, this stuff. And I remember that happening at least a couple of different times where he refuted what the doctor said that they told him. That this one's telling him not to have kids. Another one, I think, told him not to leave her alone. And he just refuted everything that they claimed they told him. Sounds like he's just wanting to not take the blame. Yeah, it does seem that way. The couple conceived their fifth and final child about seven weeks after she was discharged from the hospital. The last time she stopped taking Haldol 
in March of 2000. And this was a, an antipsychotic medication that she had been prescribed. It seemed to be working for her. But she wanted to stop taking the medicine so that she could get pregnant again. It was This was a deliberate act. She, Andrea was a nurse. She knew that conceiving a child while taking these very strong medications, these antipsychotic medications, would be very dangerous for the baby's health. So she knew that she had to stop taking mm. them. And it's really, you know, this is something that we see a lot with people who are suffering with mental illness. They will start taking, and I say they, I personally have suffered from mental illness myself. So I don't want to pretend like this is like some other person out there as if it hasn't affected me, it has. But a lot of times when people are suffering from mental illness, they will start taking medication, start feeling better, and then all of a sudden think, I don't need the medicine. And it's very strange, but it's very real because you feel normal mm -hmm. and you're like, I'm just taking this medicine. It's got mm -hmm. these side effects. It's kind of dangerous. Like, why do I have to take this medicine? I feel okay. I'm fine now. I can stop. Right. This happens a lot. Mm-hmm. And I think that maybe that's what was going on with Andrea. I really wish that her husband, who was not dealing with these things, could have had the presence of mind to understand. And I know he's not—he he was not in healthcare. I don't know. You know, were the healthcare professionals around him were they really emphasizing it enough? I don't know. I know that I have dealt with. I mean. Being a nurse myself and working in hospitals, I have seen so many times patients who have no, they have no idea the very serious medical conditions that they are suffering from. And it have been, these are ongoing conditions that they've been suffering from. And th these are medicate, there are medications for these medical conditions, these chronic illnesses. And yet, they will look right at you and be like, I don't know. I don't know if I'm taking that or not, or I don't know why I'm taking that. Like, And you just want to go, how do you not know this? You were diagnosed with you know, this condition and you're taking this medication because of this and it's preventing this and this. And, you, and it's, it can be really shocking and eye-opening when people are completely ignorant of what they're taking, why they're taking it. And then, you know, we're surprised when they come into the hospital because they weren't taking the medicine they were supposed to, you know, maybe they went home with a stent in their coronary arteries and they're supposed to be taking their dual antiplatelet therapy to keep that stent open and they get home and they're just like, hey, I don't take this medicine. And these doctors are always just prescribing stuff and they just don't take it. And then what? They end up back in the hospital with their stent occluded mm -hmm. because they didn't understand how important. And it's like, you want to, you want to, think somebody told them someone educated them on it but it wasn't driven home you know it wasn't made perfectly clear was that the case here you know i had the impression that rusty was really influenced a lot with his religious beliefs yeah. so i don't know that he really bought into all the medications and maybe therapy and you know, also just from my personal experience with you through the years, you know, I'm, I just am not always aware of what's going on. I kind of fall into this mindset that everything's good, everything's normal. And at some point, you know, I start waking up to the reality that maybe, you know, you're struggling some with depression. Yeah. So I can give Rusty some grace with that, but this was so extreme, the, the problems, you know, somebody needed to wake up. Yeah, I agree. Well, after they, they had that fifth child, you know, as I said, she had stopped taking her medicines. On November 30th, she gave birth to Mary, and then she seemed to be coping actually quite well until her father died on March 12th in 2001. And by this time, of course, not having taken any of her medications, she had another episode where she was mutilating herself and she was reading the Bible feverishly. She was neglecting her role as a caregiver and stopped feeding Mary. 
she actually became so incapacitated that she required immediate hospitalization. And then in April of 2001, she came under the care of Dr. Mohammed Saeed. She was treated for her condition and subsequently released. Then in May of 2001, she degenerated back into a near catatonic state. She drew a bath with the most sinister of intentions. She was hospitalized the next day after a scheduled doctor visit. Her psychiatrist determined that she was probably suicidal and had filled the tub to drown herself. However, Andrea would later confess to police that on that particular occasion, she had intended to use the bathwater to drown the children that day, but she decided against doing it then. It just gives me chills when I think about it. You know, just that was almost like a mock, you know, like Mm -hmm. a rehearsal Mm -hmm. kind of thing. And no one saw it. It's so easy to think, how could you not have known? And I don't think that we need to be doing that in this case. I think that what we have to do here is recognize that she obviously was suffering from severe mental illness. And there were lots of people around her who I believe were very well-intentioned and actually did love her very much, but did not understand. And I think we have to learn from this. Yeah, there's a lot to learn. And I mean, that's the real value of telling the story is to learn. And she did share a lot after the fact of what had been going on for years, actually, mm-hmm. and that she just kept to herself. But, you know, being able to know that, look back and see what the signs were, maybe we, you know, are able to prevent something else in the future. Yes, absolutely. You know, the Yates family was living in Houston in Clear Lake City, and she was still under the care of Dr. Saeed, and he reportedly gave Rusty instructions to supervise his wife around the clock. Instructions that he would later argue were never provided to him. However, on June 20th, 2001, Rusty did leave for his job at NASA, and he left Andrea alone to watch the children for approximately an hour. And it it was later found out that Rusty had decided that even though he had been advised to watch her around the clock, that he felt like she needed to have opportunities to be alone with the children so that she didn't completely lose her sense of responsibility as a mother. And so he would deliberately leave, you know, he would leave her alone for an hour. And then the person who was coming to relieve him would come an hour later just to give her an hour alone with the children. And of course that would proved to be absolutely devastating for their whole family. Are you thinking about going back to school to get a master's degree, maybe a family nurse practitioner degree? Well, it's so important to choose the right program. Samuel Merritt University's MSN FNP program has a 100% employment rate after six months. Unbelievable. And Samuel Merritt University has been kind enough to continue to sponsor our podcast, and they want us to let you know they're continuing to offer a $10,000 scholarship to anyone enrolled in their MSN, DNP, or family nurse practitioner programs. If you're interested in getting more information about these programs, you can visit them at smumsn.com. That's smumsn.com. And of course, we'll put that link on our website if you want to just go to goodnursebadnurse.com. His mother, Dora Yates, was supposed to arrive an hour after he left to tend to the children. And then that short span of an hour, Andrea confined the family dog to another part of the home to presumably prevent interference, and she drew another bath. She then proceeded to to drown all five children. She started with John. He was age five. Then Paul, age three. Luke, age two. And then laid them in their bed. She drowned Mary, age six months, whom she left floating in the tub. And then Noah, the oldest, he was age seven, wandered into the bathroom and observed his infant sister in the water. He asked what was wrong with her. And then when he realized what was going on, he ran away from his mother. She caught him despite his efforts to evade capture, and he was also drowned. She left her oldest son in the tub and laid her daughter Mary into John's arms in the bed. After this deed was done, she reportedly called 911 and repeatedly demanded 
that the police come. She wouldn't tell them why the police were needed. She was, she just continued to say, you just need to come and need police. And there was even, if you listen to the recording, the 911 dispatcher even says, do you need an ambulance? And she said, no, I need police. Then she made another phone call to her husband and urged him to come home immediately saying it's the children. And then Rusty asked which one and she said, all of them. She confessed to drowning her children. And then her trial began on February the 18th in 2002, quite an extensive trial. Days were spent observing Andrea, talking to her family, examining more than 2000 pages of records from doctors, nurses, therapists, and social workers. Although the defense expert testimony agreed that Andrea was psychotic. Texas law requires that in order to successfully assert the insanity defense, the defendant must prove that they could not discern right from wrong at the time of the crime. And that was something that they felt like you might be able to see her history and see all of the medications she was on and see all of the things that had happened up to that point. That doesn't necessarily mean that she didn't know right from wrong at the moment that this took place. I wonder how you would do that. I mean, yeah. What would be the circumstance that they would look at and say, she didn't know right from wrong? Yeah. I th- and I think that they look at their actions, like, did they, you know, the calling of 911 and asking for police as opposed to an ambulance and, you know, that sort of thing. I think that they look at their behaviors. They look at things they'd said they, before and after. They look at every single thing that the person did and analyze it to death, pretty much. So there was a California psychiatrist by the name of Dr. Park Dietz. He also worked as a consultant for law and order. And he had testified as a prosecution witness during this capital murder trial about an episode of this popular NBC crime drama that bore striking similarities to her case and supposedly ran before the drownings. So you have this very high profile psychiatrist who is very experienced at expert testimony. He, he's, he's been an expert um, witness for lots of high profile cases who comes along and not only is he experienced in testifying, but he also is a consultant for this very popular show Law and Order. Everybody knows Law and Order. It's been all, it's been for like 20 years. So here he is in this trial and he says, basically he's saying there was an episode of Law and Order in which a mother drowned her children and then got off for a re- reason of insanity. I mean, that's pretty much what the testimony was. And he is, the jury understands that he is a, someone who is a an expert or consultant for this show. And so here he says this stuff. And then during her trial, they solicit testimony that she avidly watched the show and concluded that she emulated the horrific actions of the episode. So this whole thing is put on where this psychiatrist says, yeah, there was this episode of Law and Order. It was literally the same thing that happened. And then bam, all of a sudden, she does the same thing she you know that she saw on the show. And this person on the show got off for, for insanity. Well, there was one problem with the prosecution's argument when it came to this whole Law and Order episode and the psychiatrist testifying about it. The problem is no such episode of Law and Order existed at the time that this happened. What a huge bombshell. I mean, this this is unbelievable that this could happen. Is that considered perjury that he would... Well, no. I mean, here's the thing. Dr. Dietz realized pretty quickly. He left for court pretty much and went and started thinking about it, like running it over and over in his head. And he was kind of shocked at the possibility that he maybe had made a factual error. And so he goes and looks it up and he realizes, oh, I think maybe I mixed 
up my episodes. When he realized what he did, he researched the issue with help from the writers and producers of Law and Order, and within hours determined that his recollection was probably incorrect. Within hours. He also said he offered to return to Houston at his own expense to correct the error. He made the offer to prosecutors, he said, in a letter that detailed what he believed was the source of his confusion. So in the letter dated March 14, 2002, addressed to prosecutors and furnished to Court TV by Dr. Dietz, the doctor says he erroneously meshed two different Law & Order episodes, leading to his inaccurate answer on the stand during the cross-examination. So there was apparently two different cases that involved mothers and dying children. Instead of her emulating them, they emulated her in the story that he made up. Well, the story that he made up, he was basically saying that there was a an episode, but there was not one. Yes. So there was one episode that was based on Susan Smith. And Susan Smith was a mother from South Carolina who killed her two young sons by driving her car into a lake with them. Oh, gosh, this is the most... This was... These stories are so incredibly disturbing and they get seared into your mind, you know, the events. And I, these are so incredibly different. You know, Andrea Yates was obviously suffering from mental illness. Susan Smith was not suffering from a mental illness. She was a very selfish person and she killed her children because she wanted to be with her boyfriend who didn't want to be with someone who had children. That's very different. So there was an episode of Law and Order sort of loosely based on that story. And then there's another episode that was sort of loosely based on this other woman who had she was a teenager. She had a secret pregnancy. And because of, you know, she didn't tell anybody and she had the baby, the baby died. And so then she was charged with the death of the newborn babies. And both of those episodes about Susan and this and the teenager aired just about three weeks before the deaths of the, of these, the Yates children. And so Dr. Dietz somehow just mixed that up in his mind. Totally understandable. I mean, you would hope that somebody would be more careful when they're, but I mean, people are human. The thing is, he figured it out within hours of doing it and he tried to correct it and the prosecution just ignored it. His letter, which he said he sent via email, was never introduced into evidence. He said, in short, I made an honest mistake, took immediate action to correct it. He was pretty angry that he felt like the defense attorney was making false allegations, I guess, making it seem as though he did it on purpose when really he, he's just saying, I think he would be more upset with the prosecutor who did introduce the letter. Yeah, I know exactly. I, I felt the same way. So in March of 2002, a jury rejected the insanity defense and found her guilty. Although the prosecution had sought the death penalty, the jury refused that option. The court sentenced her to life imprisonment in the Texas Department of Criminal Justice with with eligibility for parole in 40 years. But on January 6, 2005, a Texas Court of Appeals reversed the convictions based on on the fact that Dr. Dietz's testimony had been materially false and that he had given that during the trial and that whole situation that happened. So the Texas Court of Appeals were like, yeah, this was actually, you know. It would have influenced the jury most likely. Absolutely would have. There's no doubt. Thank goodness they did at least recognize that. On January 9th, 2006, she again entered a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity. And then on February 1st, 2006, she was granted release on bail on the condition that she be admitted to a mental health treatment facility. So on July 26, 2006, after three days of deliberations, she was found not guilty by reason of insanity. As defined by the state of Texas, she was thereafter committed to 
the North Texas State Hospital Vernon campus. And in January 2007, she was moved to Kerrville State Hospital, a low security mental facility in Kerrville, Texas. So Rusty and Andrea's birth family came to believe that a combination of antidepressants improperly prescribed by Dr. Saeed in the days before the tragedy was responsible for her violent psychotic behavior. According to Dr. Moira Dolan, who is the executive director of the Medical Accountability Network, homicidal ideation was added to the warning label of the antidepressant Effexor as a rare adverse event in 2005. Andrea, she said, had been taking 450 milligrams, twice the recommended maximum dose for a month for killing her children. Dr. Dolan reviewed Andrea's medical record at the request of Rusty, her husband. Dr. Lucy Pereira, an expert witness hired by Andrea's defense team, countered their contention regarding the administration of her antidepressants, saying the dosages prescribed by Dr. Saeed are not uncommon in practice and had nothing at all to do with her reemergent psychosis. She suggested rather that her psychosis returned as a result of the Haldol having been discontinued by her doctor two weeks earlier. The oral form of haloperidol or Haldol takes four to six days after discontinuation to reach a terminal plasma level under 1.5%, a medical standard for quote, complete elimination of a drug from the body. So I thought she had decided that this was held all after after the fifth child. Yeah. She had stopped the held all before, right? Yes. And there was actually even another antipsychotic medication that she had stopped taking. So there were so many factors involved in this. You know, you had her her husband who I think just did not want to believe that his wife was as sick as she really was. You have the influence of this preacher who teaches that women are evil. Right. Women are evil and um, they're going to all go to hell if they mm -hmm. don't save their children. Yeah. I mean, during her incarceration, Andrea confided that she had considered killing the children for two years She said she thought she wasn't a good mother and claimed her sons were developing improperly. She told her jail psychiatrist, it was the seventh deadly sin. My children weren't righteous. They stumbled because I was evil. The way I was raising them, they could never be saved. They were doomed to perish in the fires of hell. She also told her jail psychiatrist that Satan influenced her children and made them more disobedient. She reportedly revealed that she was fighting a battle against Satan and murdering her children was the only way to win the battle for her children's souls. She believed that if she killed them while they were still under the age of accountability, they would join God in heaven. It it does sound insane to me, but it also just sounds like a very poorly conceived worldview. Yeah. So I don't know if I would have called that insanity or not. I mean, she clearly was struggling with severe mental illness. She, yeah, and the she, medications and all that together. It's just a recipe. Well, the problem is that she had psychosis. She had a problem with psychosis. She needed medication. And instead of her being prescribed medication and her taking that medication on a regular basis, and being supported by her husband and her family. Instead, she was diagnosed with psychosis, prescribed medications, and then she had this these outside influences from her husband and from her pastor who would put pressure on her. And I'm sure she believed it herself that she didn't need it, and then she would stop taking it. So she would take the medicine and stop taking it, take the medicine and stop taking it. That is a absolute recipe for disaster when it comes to someone suffering from mental illness. And that's the thing. I mean, she needed help. She did not need to continue to have children. She absolutely needed to be on medication for her mental illness. And she had, she did not have the support that she needed at home. She did not have the support that she needed from her church. Instead, she had these influences that 
upon hearing the things that she was hearing from this person who she obviously held in very high esteem, obviously listened to everything he said, it she took that in and then her mental illness distorted it. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, I mean, it's so incredibly sad. I just hope that, you know, this, by keeping the story out there and continuing to retell it and talk about it, discuss it, kind of rehash it, just keep it alive instead of just pretending like it didn't happen. Maybe there are people out there who possibly are just, who are suffering from this sort of thing who may hear this. Maybe you have a loved one suffering from this sort of thing. Do not if someone's been diagnosed with a severe mental illness, please do not think that they can just wish it away. Mm-hmm. That is not the answer. So in 2004, Rusty filed for divorce, and she actually is currently spending her days in a state hospital in Kerrville. She comes up for every year an appeal where she can actually, she has the opportunity to be released. It can like look at her situation and assess her and say, hey, are you no longer a threat to society? No longer a threat to yourself? And can you possibly be released? She every year declines that process. I wonder if she just feels guilty and kind of imprisons herself every day with the thought of what she did. I think that she is, because she is getting the help that she needs, she's able to understand how sick she is. And she knows that. This feels safer there. Right. She knows that if she were to leave the, that safety of that environment where people are making sure that she stays medicated the way she's supposed to and she's getting the care that she needs, she's okay. But if she were to leave and she didn't have all of that oversight, that constant structure, that who knows what would happen. And I, mm-hmm. she's obviously, while on the medication, able to think that way because that's probably why she does continue to just say, no, I have to stay here. This is where, you know, this is the safest place for me to be. Mm-hmm. So I have to tell you guys about an experience I had with a nursing student. So, you know, I've been doing travel nursing. Well, this hospital where I'm at has a lot of LPN students doing their clinicals there. So one of them was following me around one day and she noticed my stethoscope. And of course, y'all know the Echo Technology Company that sponsors our podcast. They teamed up with Littman to make the stethoscopes, to beat all stethoscopes, the 3M Littman Core Digital Stethoscope. And this is the one that I use now. So she said, oh my gosh, I've been wanting to try one of those. So of course I let her use it. And she just could not stop talking about it for the rest of the shift. It was so cute. She was like, you know, I can't hear anything with my normal stethoscope because I have tinnitus. And so she was so excited because she could actually hear what heart sounds were supposed to sound like. She said, I'm going to ask for one of these for graduation. And I was like, yeah, you definitely should. So just so you know, the echo technology that makes the stethoscope so amazing. Uh, You can enable it with a flip of a switch. You can turn it on and off. It has active noise cancellation up to 40 times amplification, wireless auscultation using Bluetooth technology. It connects with Echo's free app and software so that you can visualize, record, share, live stream, analyze heart sounds, lung sounds, and whatever body sounds you want to listen to. So you can go to echohealth.com and use the promo code GNBN to get 10% off your order. And that's Echo is spelled E-K-O, by the way. So it's echohealth.com and use the GNBN promo code to get 10% off your order. Did you know that you don't have to go all across the country to be a travel nurse? You certainly can, but you don't have to. I literally took an assignment that's an hour and a half away from my house and I love it. I can stay in a hotel room if I want, or I can drive back home. So it's the best of both worlds for me. For my next assignment, we're going to get a cabin in the mountains that's about two hours from our house. So it'll really be like a little getaway. Also, one of my really good friends is going with me so we can share expenses. You guys, even if you're just a little curious about travel nursing, go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile so you can see what kind of jobs are out there and what they pay. Go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile. That does it for the this week's Badner story. You know, I always kind of struggle sometimes whenever we have situations like this where the quote bad nurse is somebody that you can kind of like, I wouldn't necessarily call Andrea Yates a bad person or a bad nurse. I have no idea what kind of nurse she actually was. 
she was suffering from mental illness. She still continues to suffer from that. And she's also a tortured soul because she is fully aware of her actions. She knows what she did and she, this is something that she has to live with. So while we put this in the slot of the bad nurse, I do not believe she's a bad person. I believe she's somebody that just needs help with her condition. I agree. So our good nurse story for this week, I I feel so bad because sometimes our good nurse story is not as uplifting and light as we would like for it to be. And yet I do want to bring attention to these things that happen in the health, in the healthcare field, these horrible things that happen to us as healthcare professionals. I want to highlight these people that it happens to. Unfortunately, sometimes in order to highlight good things people have done or things that have happened, we have to, it's not necessarily the brightest moment. And I always say we want to end on a good note. I still feel like this is ending on a good note because we are honoring someone's life who was a good person. So we're going to talk about the dedicated and compassionate nurse practitioner. She was a psychiatric nurse practitioner. And unfortunately, she was stabbed to death by a patient. So a 47-year-old man has been charged with the murder of this psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner after he allegedly stabbed her to death at the Freedom House Recovery Center in Durham, North Carolina. Now, where would a patient get his hands on a knife in the hospital? There is not enough that is done in hospitals and facilities to make sure that patients and family members do not have access to something that could be used as a weapon. It wasn't necessarily, you know, some sort of huge butcher knife. Who knows what it really was, but... It was clearly something that could cause someone's death. And I personally have been taking care of a patient who had a knife. I I have gone through this, you know, that scenario where there was a patient who was mentally unstable and he had a knife and he was sitting there in his bed peeling an apple and basically making sort of vague, veiled threats to me. And it was obvious to me what he was saying, but he was deliberately being kind of trying to be facetious and sarcastic. But, you know, that whole scenario that I remember very well happening, you know, if it had ended in him deciding, you know, to just stab me in the chest while I'm trying to hang his antibiotic right beside him, he could have. You know, he completely could have done that, and this now, whole thing could have ended that, differently. In that case, do you think you would have been able to call security and have that knife taken away? Did no, I did do that. I mean, okay. that is exactly what happened. I did. But I'm just saying that he was able to – why was he able to have a knife? And that's the thing. There, there should be safety measures in place in hospitals and facilities so that no patient and no family member should ever be allowed to darken the doors of these places with anything that could be used as a weapon. But there there just are not enough safety measures in place. I mean, they don't have metal detectors in most hospitals. No hospital I've ever worked in has had a metal detector. So I don't know what this person used. All I know is that on this day, October 18, this just happened 2022, shortly before two o'clock in the afternoon, Durham police responded to a call at the not-for-profit behavioral health care agency and discovered that this psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner, June Ankundi, had been stabbed. She was taken to a nearby hospital and she died from her injuries. James Gomez was arrested and charged with murder, and he's currently being held without bond at the Durham County Jail, and it wasn't really immediately clear if he had entered a plea or retained an attorney to comment on his behalf, but one thing that we do know is that Ankundi was a married mother of four children. She loved her job as a mental health nurse. Her friends and family told multiple news outlets. Her brother, Andrew, said that the family's loss is devastating and that her death left them grieving. 
Her family has created a GoFundMe account to assist with the cost of her funeral and other expenses following her death. They said she was dedicated, compassionate, kind, and caring. June would make any gloomy day a brighter one. Her voice and presence were magical to both staff and patients. The community has lost a great nurse. Her family said that she was preparing to begin a doctorate program at Duke University in January of 2023. The North Carolina Nurses Association president, Mika Ingram, released a statement about her death, saying that we are heartbroken by the sinful death of our colleague and fellow NCNA member. Our prayers go out to her friends and family. She dedicated her life to helping others, and we should all be proud of the positive impact she had on some of the most vulnerable patients. Her loss has shaken the nursing profession throughout North Carolina. They also addressed the dangers of working as a nurse. They said violence in the workplace is one of the greatest challenges facing nurses, and the problem has grown exponentially over the last few years. It is my desperate hope that June Onkundi's death serves as a turning point and that those of us in healthcare can truly begin to address this problem. So the thing that bothers me about this is that this happened on October 26, 2022. And really, we've heard, I've heard relatively little about this story. And it just seems like this is an isolated incident, but this has happened many times over. You can find these stories all over the internet, from all over the country, all over the world, where nurses have been killed by patients. And the thing is that nobody's really doing anything to protect us. Yeah, and you know, we've all known the mental health problems of our country has gotten worse year after year, and that's only going to contribute to more violence in the hospitals. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I am, I'm heartbroken that this happened. I want to continue to talk about these things that happen so that we can hopefully fight for change, fight for legislation that will protect us. Our, the state of Tennessee, where I live in the past few years, they passed legislation that actually make it a felony for a nurse to be assaulted by a patient. I just don't think that these things go far enough. It's one thing that I think, you know, you can pass a law and says, hey, it's going to be a felony if you do this. Okay, fine. That's fine on the back end. How does that protect me working at the bedside? It doesn't. It does nothing to protect me. What protects me is having measures in place out ahead of it, having metal detectors, having policies in place searching bags, whatever you have to do. My goodness, I can't go to a concert or a football game without having my little wallet literally opened up and looked at because they don't want people to be able to come in there and do damage and, and cause problems. But at the hospital, I could walk in there with a big backpack full of stuff. People do it all the time having who knows what. I could have a gun. I could have a a knife. I could have a bomb for crying out loud. They would have no idea. Nobody is paying any attention in most hospitals in this country. Sounds crazy. Yeah. And we're all just vulnerable because of it. And I, I think that we as healthcare professionals working in these settings have got to do more to bring awareness to this and to demand that our lawmakers Force hospitals to protect us. That's what I think. Well, that kind of wraps up this episode. I'm sorry, both of our stories were kind of downers, but I'm sorry. We just have to, you know, we have to talk about these things. And there's nowhere else to talk about this stuff other than the Goodner story, even though it's kind of a downer. So normally during this, I would be like, hey, tell everybody where they can find you. <laughs> you can find him the same place you can find me. That's good. At home, right? At home now. <laughs> but if you want to reach out, you can reach me uh, by email at tina at goodnursebadnurse.com. I, you know, I would really appreciate it if you guys would go on to wherever you listen to your podcast and give us a like and subscribe and give us a review. Pick a five-star review. I would love that. I'd appreciate it. 
apparently it matters to somebody somewhere. <laughs> it makes a difference. So I appreciate you guys. And we just, we get lots of reviews and they're really sweet. And I appreciate it so, so much. I read all of them. I read all of my emails. I may not be able to respond to every single one of them. You guys know I, I work full time. So you know, my free time, I don't have a whole lot of free time to be able to respond. I try to respond to some of you, but if I don't, please know I am reading all of your emails and all of the things, that, the messages that you send to me. And I really appreciate you. And you can find us on Facebook and Instagram. And we're even on TikTok. We're all over the place. And of course, at goodnursebadnurse.com. And I want to remind you that even if you're a bad girl or a bad boy, please be a good nurse. <laughs>